years and years ago, I asked a friend of mine, Julian Lang, who's Karuk, his thoughts and ideas about what happened in California. Anytime I write, I usually pull this quote out that Julian wrote about why Native people were able to be so resilient, why Native people were able to persevere against everything that was trying to eradicate their existence and diminish them as survivors. All these forces from Washington, D.C. were not a match for the love that Native people had and have for their families, for their culture, for their beliefs, that the forces of Washington were no match for that power and strength of love. And I think that is so true because that's the driving force for me. That's why I'm working to try to save our family home on Felix Cove, trying to get it recognized for the history of our family to persevere and their resilience. Why I'm venturing out and introducing myself to family members that I don't know. Why I'm making connections with people who have an interest in Point Reyes National Seashore. So it, it's this undeniable force that's in front of me that makes it actually easy where I meet someone that might be able to help me, that knows someone else that might be able to help me. That's been my life since September when I started to really kind of dive deep in this. It's an amazing um, force, and I, and I think it's the love for my mom, um, which extends to the love for her mom and family, which has to extend back to the generations of her ancestors of their love for their family and the love of their home. It must have been so beautiful before these people kicked us out. <laughs> we used to be full of the devil. We'd throw chickens in the bay and we rode all the calves that they could, <laughs> we could find. I just tromped all over them hills. I knew every rabbit hole and everything else that was out there. But it was all an adventure. I never heard Mom refer to the cove as Laird's Landing. What did they call it? The cove. The cove. The cove. Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast, located on the ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok peoples in present-day Marin County. I'm Adam Lofton. This special three-part series is about these Coast Miwok lands, and the multi-generational story of a family and the cove that was likely inhabited for millennia by their Coast Miwok ancestors. But this is also a story about the indigenous peoples of California and the continuous erasure of their cultures, peoples, places, and memories. The more I listened to Teresa's family's story and investigated the history of the Coast Miwok, the more I felt like all the cliches about how the Western mind perceives history are true. That the victor writes the story, that history is a genre of memory, and if we don't remember it, we are doomed to repeat it. 
Dewey Livingston, the locally famous historian who we met in episode one, has dedicated his life to documenting and writing about the histories of Marin County. If he hadn't recorded Teresa's mother and many other living histories of the Bay, we wouldn't have a window into their lives. But as a documentarian, I'm keenly aware of the responsibilities storytellers and historians hold as they interpret the past and present and help shape the future. As our culture finally begins to reckon with its colonial past, part of our work as storytellers is to reinterpret dominant histories and narratives and include the voices of those who have been ignored or silenced, taking a collaborative approach to shaping the future. Well, um, what's, what often works best is to sort of start from the beginning, and, and if you could tell me something about your family on both sides and, and how they got to be there on Tomales Bay, um, maybe starting with your, your mother's side. Well, my mother, uh, they came there, and I don't know, they come from Nakashu. They come from Nakashu, and that's where they settled, was, you know, there. This is Her the, family. The Felixes? Yeah. That's what Sam said. Yeah. Um, do you know anything about um, Domingo and Euphrasia Felix, who I've read about? I've read a couple of things that they were there in the 1800s. Do you, do, have you heard Domingo. of Domingo. Domingo. My, my grandfather's name was what? Joe? Joe Felix. And he drowned there in Tamales Bay. Well, I was um, hired by the Point Reyes National Seashore to do projects um, as a historical technician in 1988. One thing, when I listened to the recording I made of your mother, that, that I, I kind of regret, but it was my job, <laughs> was pressing her about the buildings and where was this building and where was that, when I would have much rather just spent all the time talking about her life there because it could have gone on for hours and hours. Well, I thought, but, same thing. Why didn't I record her after that, asking her about some of the stories that she shared, a little bit more detail, like who taught her how to roll? Mm -hmm. Simple question like that. Mm -hmm. Your mother was, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but but from another world, you know, um, not from the world of the the ranchers or the railroad people or the or even, you know, my descendants. This, this was, this was the, real people who had grown up on Tomales Bay for generations and, and centuries. So to me that was, it was a very special moment. And so I, although I didn't pursue that as a subject, um, I was aware of the importance of that when I went to talk to your mother and when I called her up. She did tell me that the National Park was considering making a determination of historical status. And that's why you were there, to find out about the buildings. Yeah, you see, I don't remember that. I know that Clayton Lewis had died the year before, so there was talk about what to do with the place. It was one of the things that happened that started to get me a little wary of when I was working at the park was uh, when they started to debate the fate of the buildings down there. Um, was after interviewing your mother, it especially hit me that this isn't Clayton Lewis's place as far as its 
major history. That certainly was part of the story. But that the bigger story was that these are the last uh, structural representation of um, Coast Miwok and descendants living on the west side of Tomales Bay. And there had been talk about bulldozing it and restoring it to nature, which was what was typical of the, of the thinking um, for places like that. And so we started to have those conflicts of that, uh, wait a sec, this, this, has, this has a lot of significance. Didn't, didn't go very far at that point. In 1857, the Shafter brothers, James McMillan Shafter and Oscar L. Shafter, obtained the title of 50,000 acres of unceded ancestral Coast Miwok land on the Point Reyes Peninsula, much of which is part of the Point Reyes National Park today. The brothers set up a tenant ranching empire across the peninsula and marketed their dairy products in San Francisco under a Point Reyes brand. The family's ranchman, Captain Heinrich Clausen was ordered to remove all native people from the Shafter land. Anthropologist C. Hart Merriam, who documented Coast Miwok people in the Tomales Bay area between 1900 and 1905, relayed that Clausen took a school census and found approximately 60 Coast Miwoks living on the west side of Tomales Bay, and that employees of the Shafter family set about demolishing their houses. As the structures came down, hired men stood ready with guns to punish any Coast Miwok who might object to the destruction of their home. Merriam's documentation states that as a result of this, most of the Coast Miwoks crossed the bay, scattered, and soon became practically extinct, and that a few half-breeds on the west side of the bay near Marshall remained, but doubted if there was a single full-blood Coast Miwok person left, or anyone who could speak the Coast Miwok language. It seems like that comment that they drove off the full-bloods, they drove off the people who could still speak the language, that they didn't feel threatened by the half-breeds, mm-hmm. quote, yeah. The half-breeds that lived up the coast were most likely my family. But that's the quote that I've been using in presentations, and I'm glad to hear you're using it too in your book, because you know that, that relates to the state legislature appropriating $1.1 million for militias and military to basically drive Indian people out to make room for the settlers. And so that's all part of it, of that kind of empowerment uh, that you could do something like that and not have any repercussions because it was what the law was empowered you to do. So it's all part of that history. So that's that that's the part that you won't find in Point Reyes National Seashore when you go to their landing page on the history of ranching. It's it's, it's really important to to find, and I thank you for sending me that, because um, we read histories of indigenous people around the country and you hear about massacres and disease and all of this terrible pushing out, and you don't read about that in the historical record in Marin County. And that's not to say it wasn't happening. And this was the first I'd seen, other than some very terrible writing in the newspaper, a lot of 
terrible bias. I've collected up a lot out of the old Marin County Journal and Marin Journal. Well, there's one quote I could give you the real quote if I got my laptop out, but of why don't they exterminate them like they are doing in the plains, you mm -hmm. know, exactly. in, in the local newspapers yeah. saying that. Yeah. But never have I seen in all, all the research I've done uh, is an account like this one from Miriam, so I think it's really important. Yeah, it is, and I wonder what else has been collected. That was the dominant thinking, so there wasn't a reason to hide it. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't any repercussions from actions taken against Native people. Yeah. That was the status quo. After my mom died, she died in 1998, I was calling the park archive and trying to make an appointment to listen to the tape that Dewey recorded. And I was talking to someone who worked in the office, and the woman said, well, your family lived in the chicken coop. And I was shocked. I mean, I was a grown adult, but I was shocked that she would be so demeaning to me and to my family. I didn't quite know how to process it, so everything about me, <laughs> that people might perceive me to be so strong and so able to face confrontation, all of that fell away from me. Sometimes that space where you're demeaned, you can't find your fight. Maybe it was her voice, maybe it was because she was speaking from the National Park Service office, but um, maybe that's, when I think about it, you know, I'm thinking out loud as I'm talking, maybe that's, maybe there's a little bit of that is what's asserting me um, or pushing me make up for not having that fight at that moment. Would you say that you're in a fight right now? Yeah, I am in a fight. Um, I'm in a fight because suggestions to protect the house, it's not protected. You know, there isn't signage, there isn't meetings, there isn't anything, you know, it's, I think of it as maybe inside of me it's a fight, but on outside, when I communicate to officials, it's advocacy. Because, you know, you when you fight, you, you're going to elicit a reaction. And I need to educate. I need to persuade. I need to encourage. I need to um, create an environment where people can hear me and validate and see the importance of the family's story. It's not helpful if I'm in a space where people are defensive or I put people on the defensive. I'm fighting an institution. I'm fighting 50 years of neglect, hundreds and hundreds of years of white dominance. So internally it might be a fight, but externally it's a voice of advocacy, a voice of invitation to learn about the family. You have an opportunity to fix an issue of neglect. You can be the one to show leadership. You can be the one 
to bring balance. Can you describe what we're seeing down here? Oh, we're seeing folks walking around. You know, it, it's pretty, it's common to see folks walking around and looks like they've got some life jackets on, so maybe they just came off a boat. Um, probably curious, like, who lived here, and, <laughs> you know, and what's going on, because some of there's new construction, and folks who come here, they're folks that are interested in the beauty and the nature, and... What is this place? It's an old Coast Miwok home. Her mother was raised here, and it goes back in her family's back to the 1860s. It's one of the last Coast Miwok dwellings that's still around. Her family was evicted from here in the 50s because they couldn't prove ownership of this land. But now what you see is, is the park reverted it back to where my family was in the 1940s. It's changed quite a bit. But. Mm -hmm. should, I feel like there should be some signage because we were yeah. just kayaking. There used to be one and somebody took it down. Yeah. How long was your family here before they were kicked out? Well, we, we say that they were here since time immemorial because, you know, anywhere where there's fresh water and there is a freshwater creek that runs through and there's a cove, that's where the Coast Miwok people lived. The archaeologists have dated artifacts to more than 10,000 years, but that's just based on what they have found. So, you know, at some point, someone will find something that will go back even further. We um, believe that my family, some members of my family were in the missions. And then when the Mexican government took over from Spain, they secularized the missions and opened up the missions and people started to return. So I, I'm not sure if people lived here continuously and came and went or never went to the missions and some did, but I do know that even though these structures were built in the mid-1800s, the settlements were here, the villages were here. You know, some people believe, well, you date it by the style of the carpentry. But they probably lived here in housings and dwellings that no longer stand. As I research how long Coast Miwok people have lived on the Tamales and San Francisco Bays, I am struck by the fact that their civilization actually predates the formation of these bays. Evidence of their presence in the region dates back over 10,000 years to the end of the last ice age, a time when the sea level was 300 feet lower and the coastline of the San Francisco Bay region was over 35 miles west of where it lies today. On a clear day, I often search the ocean's horizon for the small Farallon Islands some 30 miles offshore. I know them as a bird sanctuary and a feeding ground of great white sharks. I now imagine these scraggly islands as the coastal mountains they once were, nestled in a lush valley, and picture Coast Miwok standing on their peaks, scanning the Pacific horizon. Some eight or 9,000 years ago, as the glaciers melted, generations of indigenous people witnessed the rising sea slowly flooding the river canyon known today as the Golden Gate. Over 5,000 years before Sir Francis Drake stopped in Point Reyes, or the Spanish and Russians laid claim to California, 
geological processes had created the San Francisco and Tamales Bay we now call home. All the while, these first peoples of California adapted their lives and traditional ecological knowledge to the changing landscape. So we think that we've been here before Drake came by and before this Cabrillo came by and, and before the Russians. So I'm glad you guys are able to take a little bit of ownership back. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we are. Because twice the National Park planned to bulldoze everything. Mm. Um, but um, the last attempt in 2015, the State Historic Preservation Office denied it. And so then they started to restore it. And the new superintendent, Craig Kinkle, has promised me that while he's the superintendent, I don't have to worry about it being demoed. So that's great. Yeah. And now we're, we're just in starting talks about what, what a plan would look like of restoration. And our goal is to actually have a living history and culture center. So you would see teas and, you know, other plants for baskets that represent what Coast Miwok people utilized. And then you would get a fuller picture of the history. But this, as far as I know, is the last remaining Coast Miwok built structure. I think before when I came here, I feel a little unsettled when I saw people walking around on the beach. It was like, wait a minute, this is my family's beach, and this is, you know, my family's house. And I, I felt very defensive and uncomfortable. Um, but now as I, me and my family have been working on this actively since last year, I actually, you know, am welcoming to people who come here and happy to tell them the story. and interested to know, is this a favorite spot of theirs, or is this their first time here? And so by telling my story, my family's story, I feel like I've got more sets of eyes to watch the house, watch the buildings and stuff like that. So, yeah, and I, I welcome people now. But before I was like, get off the porch. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any debate currently within the park systems and the way they're, they're looking at the history about the time determinations of when families were living out in the cove? I don't know what's going on at the park, so I don't know. I think the debate goes back to when our uncle fought back the eviction from Turney and Lundgren, that he had to show proof that the family lived at the cove before 1878, um, according to the news article. So that is part of what's being contested, is when the family actually started to live at the cove. And then when talking with National Park Service, I, I think I read it in the draft nomination written by Sandra Deschard that they believe the house was built in the late 1800s to as early as the 1910s. Um, and they're basing that on the style of the architecture and the materials. 
and I have the nomination here. So, um, yeah, in fact, it says here um, about uh, Uncle Vic in, uh, initiating suit, arguing the family occupied the site since 1830, 1830s, an assertion that is almost certainly incorrect with no title or tax receipts. However, they have no evidence of their claim to the property. The lawsuit was lost, but that doesn't mean that we still can't piece together information and documentation of the ex existence of the family, because that's part of the story that we're trying to tell and uncover and recover. Also, when you think about the larger framework of how Native people have had to prove their relationship or their ties to their ancestral homelands before there were systems of written documentation. So written documentation carries the weight and for Native people there wasn't written documentation. My uncle's attorney was quoted by saying everyone in court agreed that the family lived there prior to 1870 but there's no documentation to prove it. So it's not a winnable case in American legal system. The history of written agreements between California indigenous people and the colonizing Spanish, Mexican, and American governments encompasses stories of abuse and broken promises. Despite the guarantees of rights to land and citizenship, that were outlined in the 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which brought an official end to the Mexican-American War, California's indigenous and Mexican peoples were systematically denied state citizenship, voting rights, and the right to testify in court. These acts effectively removed all legal redress for Native peoples, leading to rampant cases of indentured servitude, slavery, rape, and murder. The majority that did manage to secure lands based on the terms of the treaty were soon robbed of it. Under pressure from the California congressional delegation, the United States Senate not only refused to ratify 18 land treaties that had been negotiated with California tribes in 1851 and 52, but they also took extraordinary steps to place the treaties under seal, hiding them from public record. Not only did the Senate refuse to ratify the treaties, but Congress extinguished all California tribal land claims following the Land Act of 1851. As a result, seven million acres of Aboriginal homeland was stolen, and the vast majority of indigenous people in California became landless. For families like Teresa's, who continued to live in their homes and on their ancestral lands, they did so with less and less legal standing in the eyes of the state and federal government. In 1958, Congress unilaterally decided that the rancherias, California's equivalent to reservations, should be abolished so that Native Americans could be assimilated into non-Indigenous society. The government promised Indigenous communities improved roads, sanitation services, and vocational schools before the termination of the rancherias would take place. This California Rancheria Act removed 46 rancherias, including Grayton Rancheria, 
from Federal Trust and ended all federal services to the affiliated community members. The federal government never delivered on the promised civic infrastructure, and because of the resulting inadequate water and sanitation systems, the lands were rendered uninhabitable and were later sold or passed out of indigenous ownership through tax sales or economic necessity. 42 years later, in 2000, the tribe regained federal recognition as the Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria, with many of Teresa's family becoming enrolled members. A year later, on a rainy winter day, tribal citizens gathered privately at Kuliloklo, a reconstructed Coast Miwok village located in Point Reyes National Seashore. Huddled together in the smoky interior of the semi-subterranean roundhouse, the newly restored tribe celebrated their history, their families, and their future as a sovereign people. So where I am now is taking steps to protect the house and to get the house restored and to get a family story told that is respectful, that recognizes the hardships of my family to survive as Tamales Bay Indians, and that's how they identified themselves, to give them the dignity that they deserve. In order to do that, it needs the voices and the stories of other family members of the, of the extended family. My voice is just one side of this. The Felix family was a large extended family on the bay. They lived on the west side of Tamales Bay. They lived on the east side. You know, they were fishermen. They were ranch hands. They were ranch cooks. And so the vitality of that community, of that Coast Miwok, Tamales Bay Indian community, in order to picture it, we need the voices of as many relatives who are willing to share their family stories. And so that involves making connections with relatives who I don't know, who I'm meeting for the first time. This is about the Felix family. Mm -hmm. So it's about um, what we're hoping to record is um, about our shared history, about the uh, grandpas. This is... Um, an old thing that my mom and dad put together from the 50s. Oh, okay. See, what I understand is that Ben Felix was your great-grandpa. And mine was Joe Felix. Because there's the Bell Carrillos. There's Otis, Johnny, Frankie. It's missing my mom. My yeah, because we're having a hard time finding our, our grandfather's father. Because there was three guys with the same name. Oh, you don't so, know which one. <laughs> So all I really know is that my mom called your dad cousin. And my understanding is that Joe Felix and Ben Felix were the two brothers who built the houses out at Laird's oh, Landing okay. and Marshall Beach. So that's why I'm, I'm here is because your family story is part of my mom's story. Mm -hmm. So maybe we share the same great-grandpa. Mm-hmm. So that's what it is. I'm looking for folks that came from the Bay 
your mom and dad came from the Bay and I'm looking for hopefully your story to share to kind of fill out the how the family yeah because I'm just getting to meet your cousins too our cousins <laughs> our cousins yeah you know um through the tribe because see I was confused because they were saying that you're not even Coast Miwok I'm not but um, by blood because I was adopted I'm enrolled with my blood family in New Mexico but my mom was Coast Miwok so so you're Coast Miwok through your mom through adoption Oh, see, that's where I was confused. I thought she was your blood mother. Mm-mm. I was adopted at birth, and my native blood comes from New Mexico. But my mom is who my mom was. Her relatives were my relatives. That's all I know, mm. right? My aunts grew up, were born and raised at Laird's Landing. My uncle's born and raised there, and that's, oh, yeah. that's the family I know. And, you know, their stories aren't told. It gets overlooked, and it's it. This is an opportunity for us to share a story. And I grew up in Mill Valley, yeah. being told a story that Miwok people don't live here anymore. That <laughs> the Miwok people are all gone, and I don't want no, kids to grow up hearing that story anymore. It's so uh, so sad. One of the troubles I have is like I was making. I was working for a door company. I was taking doors to this place in, in Fairfax. So uh, I was going there and I was driving. And I was going to this beautiful spot through, you know, in the back. You get to the back of Fairfax and you go, oh, man, it must have been so beautiful before these people kicked us out. You know, I was just thinking that. And, yeah, oh, God. And I could hear this voice and this woman's crying. And she say, why are they killing my children? And man, I just started bawling. Just try, you know, I was hit by all this emotion. Why are they killing us? Why are they killing our children? And it, you know, all I can say was because you were born here. Mm -hmm. That's the only reason you're dying is because you were born here. So I felt so, so sad. Man, it was so weird pulling up to the job. mm -hmm. And I was just (laughs) a a wet rag, you know, and I was just, because I went through all these emotions and it took me a while so I could drive back to the company but that's what I'll hit sometimes when I'm walking around in Marin. My name is David Carrillo. I'm the son of um, Sam and Galena who is Juanita Carrillo and uh, my father Frank Carrillo. My mom was a great mom. I used to stay up till midnight and Talk to her about being Indian. They were they were born in the time when they couldn't speak the language and they spoke Spanish and they were all trained by the missions because they were all servants for the Spanish, for the ranchers. They knew how to set tables and you know how the forks and spoons and everything were used because they had to do the dishes and set the tables. Because my mom even worked as a little girl at the Presidio in San Francisco, and then she would come home and bring gifts for her brothers and sisters. She had a job, she was just a young girl. So the Spanish, the Mexicans, and the early Americans could 
take an Indian child from the age of three or four and keep them, depending if they were male or female, and keep them into their 20s as a house servant. And the California state legislature changed the law in the 1800s to allow the taking of children to serve in homes without the parents' permission. So, you know, um, my grandmother was a tough lady, and I think my grandma was probably, you know, working as a child. You know, I think that part of the reason why she was tough and could be hard-edged is because she didn't experience softness, didn't experience a childhood. If you look at history of California Indians, and you look especially at the history of ranches, one way that people thought to civilize Indians was to teach the girls house skills and the boys farming or carpentry skills. I would suspect that my grandmother might have been indentured. Most of them worked for the ranches. I would imagine that's how she became a ranch cook. And this is how Coast Miwok people survived at Point Reyes, was through their labor. They were of value for their labor to tend animals, farm, carpentry, cook. In the mid-1800s, during the same period that Teresa's great-great-grandparents, Euphrasia and Domingo Felix, returned to Tamales Bay, white settler George Thomas Wood married a Coast Miwok woman, claimed land on a small peninsula near the northeastern mouth of the bay, and set up the Tom's Point trading post. Tom's Point became the shipping and trading point for all the Spanish, Russian, French, and English traders on the coast, and was staffed in part by Coast Miwok laborers hailing from the bay. The area was a familiar space for coastal Miwoks, where they sought to rebuild their lives after leaving the controlled and oppressive Spanish missions. Coast Miwok laborers at Tom's Point brought new skills from their experiences in the missions as masterful carpenters, blacksmiths, cobblers, and cooks. However, Coast Miwok labor continued to be widely exploited in the area. George Thomas Wood was known as a shrewd business manager who used his knowledge of Coast Miwok language and culture to earn the trust of his indigenous in-laws and neighbors, all the while brokering labor deals that favored his business interests with ranches, farms, and mills in Sonoma and Marin County. In 1846, Englishman William Gardner wrote the following in a letter. There are many persons who have tremendous large tracts of beautiful and fertile lands containing from three to 11 square leagues. And the man who cultivates 20 acres of it without taking the trouble to fence it is considered among themselves an extraordinarily industrious man. And at the same time, were it not for the Indians who work about the farms for little or nothing and generally get cheated out of that, there would be no land cultivated in California. Just as during the Spanish and Mexican occupation of Coast Miwok homelands, the growing American ranching empire on the Point Reyes Peninsula exploited the land and labor of the Coast Miwok. The work was oppressive, 
but the indigenous people continued to adapt to the rapidly changing colonial power dynamics of California, learning new languages, including the language of capitalism. The Bay was their home, and as they rebuilt their houses and lives, they continued to reassert their sovereign claim to the land. So working from childhood, learning carpentry skills, that's what Ben and Joe Felix demonstrated that they had carpentry skills to build homes. They knew how to mill wood and able to build a house for their families. And because of that, I've seen some writings where the park thinks that my family only began to live at Felix Cove at the turn of the century because of the structure and the carpentry methods of the house, not giving space for the potential that the family lived there in a different type of dwelling that no longer exists, that was replaced by the new house. It's so ironic that they acquired these skills of modernity. That is a, a rule against them for being somewhat not as Kosmiwak, not as Tamalhui. It devalues them. So it's crazy in their success to survive and their success to provide that it's a mark against them. That's part of the erasure complex is that you deny people based on your observations or based on, you know, what's left standing. Even though the same land is filled with the remains and filled with the artifacts 10,000 plus years old of the very same people. That's the incredulous part. Could you explain your job that brings you into proximity of so many? Oh, I'm a tribal monitor for the Great Rancheria. So my job is to go help uh, identify bones and you know, because the first thing you do is you got to call a coroner, and they got to make it official that it's it's native or prehistoric, or sometimes they find a younger person. You know, in Fairfax, there's a lot of bodies all around Fairfax. They're just in the yards everywhere there. And, They're buried. Um, mm -hmm. You get an opportunity to see nature. Oh man, that's why I love my job. I want to retire, but it's so beautiful. Yeah. I get to be in my homeland. I get to talk to people about our people and share stories. And You know, in, in Belvedere over there, they dug down to redo the foundation. And they went like almost 20 feet and they still didn't go through all the Medan soil. It's so thick. And they want their house there. And I pray for them that God, that the spirits have mercy on them. They don't know any better. It feels funny to pray for people that I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm serious. I do pray for them. I'm, you know, well, they a don't know. Merciful heart. You have a merciful heart. They're so they're so disrespectful. Cause that's our ancestors. But it must have been so beautiful, man. You know, living in that way of life and the, right there in Sausalito and Belvedere and Chiburon and stretching out. 
<laughs> the water's full of fish. There's sea lions galore everywhere. Sea otters must have tasted good because all the places we go, we find a lot of sea otter bones. So it must have been tasty mm. little little critter. Must have been <laughs> like hot dogs. <laughs> so I also brought you a copy. Um, this was reprinted by the Point Point Race Light, and this is the story of our family and the eviction oh. from Laird's Landing. That's from 1976. That's when he got kicked out? He got kicked out in the 50s. He oh, had, in the 50s. He had to leave. Those ranchers were cold-blooded, man. That's when our family mm -hmm. left. Our family yeah. was... Well, left. we tried to get land for the cemetery, you know, just a little bit. That rancher wouldn't let us have 10 feet. Oh. You know? The cemetery in Marshall? Yeah. You wanted to make for it more. Better? Yeah. That, my dad went to talk to him. He knew him. Which rancher was that? Jeez, I don't know. Whoever owned it then hmm. was that land there. Yeah. So that's how the laws are stacked against us, how we see things, you know. So you can see how we don't trust the Americans. Don't trust Americans at all, actually. I mean, I love them, but, you know, I, I was willing to die for them, go to war, fight, because I grew up with all these kids. They were all my friends. They were going to war. I couldn't see not going with them because they thought, we all kind of thought we were doing the right thing. We didn't know at the time that we're just being used, you know? And it's so sad because uh, our people are still going into countries and treating them like they treated us. And they haven't learned. And now they want to go to other planets, which is oh. so <laughs> stupid. <clears throat> we can't even go to another country and, and treat people right. Right. So, Because they're still not treating us right. They're treating us like we're conquered, beaten people. Those stupid signs with the Indians, the lance is down and he's all broken. He's oh, end of the trail. End of the trail. I wish I could blow up every one of those signs because that they used to, even when I was a child, I used to hate that sign because it's just rubbing it in our faces that they whooped us. They always want us to remember that they whooped us. Mm -hmm. They constantly bring it up, you know? Well, when I think about the work that I'm doing to try to protect the family house, to me, that's like saying, you haven't whooped us. Yeah. We're still here. We're still attached to that land. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's so important to counter the story of the National Park Service that puts Coast Miwok people in the past. In the 17th century, when Drake runs aground, or at the turn of the century that they worked at the ranches. And what it does is it denies the full multi-layered histories of Coast Miwok people living here at the Bay as late as the 1950s. Tamales Bay Indians, they survived the Spanish missions, they survived the Mexican ranchos, they survived the American ranches to be able to create lives for themselves, raise families on the coves, and it brings them to 
modernity, it contradicts a story that Coast Miwok people only exist in the past. Do you think that that story has been intentional? I think the story of Coast Miwok people in the past is an easy story to tell. It's an easy story to tell because then there's no story to tell of Coast Miwok people having to go through the experience of working in servitude. There's no story to tell about how Coast Miwok people were driven out of Tomales Bay. How is it that 10,000 years of continuous human civilization is seemingly invisible today? The evidence is just below us, and as recently as the 19th century, stood as high as 30 feet for all to see. Throughout the San Francisco Bay and coastal region, indigenous peoples made shell mounds of earth and organic matter that were built up over thousands of years ranging from 30 to 600 feet long and up to 30 feet tall. The mounds were sacred communal spaces that held the relationships between the living and the dead and served as spaces to pray, feast, dance, and bury family. They were also sites of homes and workshops and a high ground to gain perspective above the bay. Between 1907 and 1908, as the Coast Miwok and other indigenous people were being removed to rancherias, archaeologist Nels C. Nelson circumnavigated the San Francisco Bay and recorded 425 individual shell mound sites. By this time, the shell mounds had already been compromised by both natural and man-made factors. A slowly rising bay had flooded many sites, while others were degraded by erosion from waves and seasonal creeks. As settlers inundated the bay, the sacred meaning and cultural importance of these spaces was disregarded. Grave sites were desecrated and robbed by hobbyists and professional archeologists alike, with the remains of people and their possessions taken to private and academic museums or displayed in homes as curios. As Nelson walked an estimated 3,000 miles of the bay shore, he was aware that he would likely be the last to see and study many of these shell mound sites. Settlers on the bay misunderstood the shell mounds to be native dump sites, calling them midden. A derogatory yet ubiquitous archeological term originating from the Scandinavian word meaning muck heap. Whole shell mounds were excavated for fertilizer and marketed as Indian Mount topsoil. Some decided to build their houses directly on top of them, while other mounds were removed to build amusement parks and factories. As each mound disappeared, thousands of years of relationship to the land was chipped away, and the settler mythology of vacant indigenous lands and cultural extinction took root. In the town of Mill Valley where I grew up, there was a large shell mound site near what is today a 7-Eleven a place where the Old Mill Creek once met the Richardson Bay marshland before it was filled in to create land for more homes. In researching this, I learned it was a village site named Anamas and that the shell mound was 450 feet long 
200 feet wide, and towered 20 feet tall. The shell midden was used to pave driveways, roads, and tennis courts throughout Mill Valley, and many of Marin's original roads were made from the numerous shell mounds throughout the county. Even today, as the residents of Marin County expand their homes, they often unsuspectingly excavate graves and ritual objects from the forgotten Coast Miwok civilization. In the face of this, what is our responsibility to this stolen land as we inherit this history of destruction and erasure? So the language is called Tamal. 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 And then we need And then you say Upantoish means are you well? And then you say Katoish, yes I'm well. Same so, for male and female, do you the same words? Yeah, for that that cuz it's the greeting, opening greeting. When the disease came, I can imagine that that's when they would say are you well? <laughs> Upantoish, are you well? And, and then you'd say, yeah, I'm well. Then you can come in and visit. Wow, I never mm. thought about it that way. Yeah, me either, till this COVID thing hit. And I go, hey, that... Because they had to deal with a lot of disease because we were dying from the common cold and... Uh, smallpox. Smallpox. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was killing us by the thousands. They think they're... By the time settlers came from Europe, and they came from the East Coast, and there was only like 10% of the populations really left. So how do you imagine? There was thousands of us when they came, so there must have been hundreds and thousands of our people, because they were around. Because man, I tell you, we're buried everywhere. I don't, man, I wish I could find my mom's papers, but she had a story of the last full blood and he died of a broken heart. You ever hear that story? She ever tell you that story? Mm -mm. He spoke the language, everything. Wow. And uh, they say he died, just died of a broken heart. Well, that's how I think about my uncle because uh, after he was evicted, my uncle only lived 11 more years. So my Uncle Vic was the last Coast Miwok person to be forced off the western shore of Tomales Bay by eviction. And with his eviction, the family connection and the tie to the house was cut. And the many, many generations of the Felix family on the cove and also the thousands of years of history of Coast Miwok, Tamalhuye people living at Tamales Bay on the western side was gone. Not gone from the memories and the hearts of the people, but physically gone. I think about the weight of disappointment, the weight of mourning he had to go through, and what a gut punch 
that had to be not only to him, but the entire family. This was the ultimate rejection, the ultimate assault on the family. So after my Uncle Vic was evicted, um, he was working for Johnson Oyster Company and he was still living in the area. So the house was constantly there in his mind and in front of him across the bay. My mom said he had been sick, he'd been in the hospital. But he went to work, she said he went to work too early. And in 1966, 11 years after the eviction, um, my Uncle Vic dropped dead at work. telling you when I was growing up how little I knew. Oh, yeah. What, what would you want people to know today about the place that they live here in Sonoma County or in Marin County? You know, in, in my heart, I, I would, I'd like to go home. I'd like to be back in Marin somewhere. Marshall or Sausalito even. I go there and I see all that med and soil. The med and soil is sometimes like 22 feet, and we don't go through it because it's so thick. And that's right there in Belvedere, Sausalito. Sausalito's all med and soil. That was a huge Mungus village. All the way into San Rafael, our people were thick. We had to die like dogs. I think that's what hurts me, and that our people had to be slaughtered and butchered just because they were born there. And there's nothing I can do, you know. The people that did it are dead. But I'd, I'd like people to know that, you know, that we need to change. We need to change our values. We need to change our, our outlook. And we're all, we're in this all together. You know, we were trying to explain that to the people when they came, but they, they didn't have nothing on their mind but owning the land. They didn't want to hear our stories, our songs, or know about our medicines. All they wanted was that yellow rock and whatever could make them have more of yellow rock. I've heard students from Berkeley tell me that, you know, they tore down almost all the redwood in four years. Four years. Because they were able to put them right on the boats in the Bay Area. But we've, we share that love with this land. And, you know, we, we had so many relatives, the deer, the birds, millions of birds, fish. You know, it just, it was so beautiful. What they did to this land is, is it's not right. We need to learn about our history together and face it. If we're gonna get past all that stupidity and hate, we need to face it 
and know about it and, and identify it and not don't do it again. Well, it's time for the story to come out. Yeah. But, you know, I can get past to all the things that they've done. But it's hard to get past to all the things that they did if you still see them tearing up mountains and misusing the land. Today, it's not ignorance. They know that these things are happening and they're still doing it. That's criminal to me. People don't see themselves as part of nature. No, but we all are part of it. And we, we, we try to share those thoughts and beliefs. We're all part of a journey, every one of us. And it's, it's a beautiful world. It's just the humans that make it ugly, mean. change the actions of our ancestors. But I keep wondering, if Coast Miwok people are willing to forgive, shouldn't it be our responsibility to remember? Shouldn't it be our responsibility to ensure the shared history is an accurate and just representation of the places we call home? Maybe that is a piece of what healing can look like. Join us in Episode 3 as we learn stories from some of the last Coast Miwok people to grow up on Tamales Bay and explore the conditions that led them to move away. This series is directed, narrated, and edited by Adam Lofton. It is produced by Adam Lofton and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Narration is written by Adam Lofton, Chelsea Steinauer Scudder, and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Original music by Matthew Atticus Berger, H. Scott Salinas, and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Sound mix by Matthew Mickelson. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Calliopeia Foundation. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. Our original essays, films, interviews, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.